I'm going to open the sermon with a fortune cookie reading, okay? Here we go. Here we go. So, and, and, and here's the other thing. I'm going to try, if I, if, I, if I could make this fit in the message, whatever this says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. All right. So let's see what we got here. Let's see what we got. All right. If it's not family appropriate, I'm not reading it. Just, just so you know. I, I don't know. Here we go. Oh, it's like I set it up. It's like I set it up. A friend's advice is invaluable. A friend's advice is invaluable. So that'll be coming a little bit later. If I remember, hopefully I remember. Uh, but this one's easy. I, I got lucky this first time. Okay. If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Fortunately, it was not something about, um, you know, romance or, you know, mysterious stranger will enter your life. I'm just going to duck out after church if that happens, you know. I don't want to don't want to meet any mysterious strangers. <laughs> All right. So you should be going to Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to land right about... Uh, let's go with verse 18. Verse 18. Matthew 18, 18. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, I originally chose the line, where two or three are gathered. I wanted to talk about that. And, and maybe you've been to a prayer meeting at some point in your life, and it's been said, well, there's two or three gathered here, so that means Christ is here. My issue with that is if I take that to its logical conclusion, then when I am alone, who's not with me? See, that's a problem. And it's a problem because Jesus says things like, uh, don't pray in public like the hypocrites to be heard. Where does he say? He goes, go into your closet and close the door. And then God will hear you and answer you. So, so what is it? Do you want me to be alone or with a group of people? I mean, I have heard some people say this verse is why it's better to pray in groups than by yourself. You know? No. no that's not what he's saying. That's not what he means where two or three are gathered. Now, the interesting thing is, as I was studying this, I realized this whole section is like a series of commonly misunderstood verses, right? This is not the only one that you might have heard something about. Like if you back up one verse to verse 19, two or three agreeing on anything. Have you ever heard someone say, I want you to agree with me in prayer? You need to agree with me. Now, if they say that, they probably mean this verse. I want you to agree so that the Father will do it. Again, I, I think there's good intentions there, and it's not really bad. I'm just saying that's not exactly what Jesus meant when he said that. It wasn't instructions for a prayer meeting. It was something else that has to do with prayer, though. Okay, if you back up one more verse, he says, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You might have heard someone say or pray that they want to bind a demon. You know, maybe you've heard that. I've heard that. We want Satan to be bound. 
And, and, and people will quote this passage. If we bind it on earth, it's bound in heaven, it's bound. But if we look at the whole passage, you'll see that none of this is about demons. He's not talking about that particular subject. And the other thing that makes me a little uncomfortable binding and loosing, whatever it means, whatever we say it means, doesn't it make it sound like what I do here, what I choose to do here in binding and loosing, then God obligates God to do it in heaven? Like I'm forcing God to do something because I'm binding so he has to bind? Is that how my prayer life works? Do I bind or loose things that God is obligated to do then? See, I'm uncomfortable. And I think these verses get thrown around a lot, and I'm sure I've even used them in an improper way. What do they really mean? What are they really about? Well, if you're in Matthew 18, what I want to do is I'd like to look at uh, the entire chapter 18. I can't look at it in detail. I wish we could, but... I just want to run through Matthew 18. It is a unit. In fact, some people argue uh, chapter 18, verse 1, goes through chapter 19, verse, oh, let's see, right around 15. You know, that that's like one unit. I'm not going to go all the way into chapter 19, though. But I do want to take you through 18 so you can see what this is about. My argument here is going to be that Matthew 18 is about kids. It's about children. Is that surprising to you? If you start in Matthew 18, you'll notice that the disciples are having a discussion and they want to ask Jesus a question. And the question is, which of us is the greatest? A very prideful question to ask. Peter, James, and John seem to be on the inner circle. You know, so did this question come from them? You know, so... so who is the greatest of the twelve? Fortunately, probably not Judas. Um, who's the best? And Jesus brings a child up, and he says, this child, in his humility, is the greatest. And none of you can enter the kingdom of God unless you enter like a child. And so, all week long, I've been like knocking my head against the wall, maybe the computer, um, asking myself the question, why is it that Jesus starts with a child and ends with like, uh, if your brother sins against you, like verse 15, which is kind of like church discipline? You go to your brother, you confront him, you know. What does that have to do with children? I believe Matthew 18 is about vulnerable children and the adults who care for them. Let me take you through it just briefly. If you will look at verses 1 through 4, we just talked about this. This is Jesus taking the child amongst them and saying, in verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You need to be humble, dependent on God. You come with not bringing nothing to the table. No, no, no riches, no, 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 no personal glory, no personal righteousness. You come as a spiritual beggar, as a child, saying, I need... Become humble like children. So well, let me say this from the get-go. Jesus is speaking as if his hearers are the parents. And as parents, they have certain responsibilities to children. You're the parents. So the first word Jesus would say to you is, be humble like a child. 
Look at your children. Be humble like them when it comes to your relationship with God. The second thing he says is in verses 5 through 10. Um, this is where Jesus talks about welcoming children. And he says, whoever welcomes a child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better to have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the sea. So number two, he's saying you need to welcome children, especially children that believe in Jesus, and do not offend them. Do not entice them. Do not tempt them to sin, which unfortunately we know there's wicked people throughout the world that are constantly trying to entice children and tempt them and cause them to stumble. And Jesus says it'd be better if they were just drowned. Get rid of them. These are awful, awful people. To entice a child? Harsh words. And then he goes on, and he starts talking about lost children, 12 through 14. Um, In 12 through 14, he talks about a man who has a 100 sheep, and one of them goes astray, and the man leaves the 99 to find the one. And then in verse 14, Jesus says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, little ones, should perish. Again, the child theme, the little ones. And I don't think he just means kids. I think we're now talking metaphorically, anybody who has a childlike faith that wanders away, the shepherd's going after that person. Be it a child, an adult, anybody, the shepherd is going after that person. But that person that's wandered away is like a little child that's wandered away. He's a lost sheep. And I think the theme of children continues to extend through this chapter. Then you get to our passage in question, including the discipline. Let's read this whole thing here. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses uh, to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on, any, on earth about anything they ask, it will be done by them, for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So I think part four here in this chapter is um, we need to restore sinning children. I think the metaphor continues down through the chapter. And what Jesus is saying is these children are vulnerable to sin. And there is a brother that will sin against you. And you need to go to your brother and point out that sin and seek restoration. In this case, what I'm saying is Children are vulnerable, right? They can be enticed by adults. They can be caused to stumble by adults. They can wander away like sheep. They are vulnerable. And here in this section on quote-unquote church discipline, I believe the metaphor extends into it. And what he's saying is that your brother is also vulnerable like a child to sin. And your brother has sinned against you. And you need to go with the purpose of restoring your brother. And then finally, you get to the last part of uh, Matthew 18, and Peter comes up and says, well, how much should I really forgive my brother? You know, seven times? Is that enough? 
And then Jesus has his famous quote, you know, the 70 times 7. And then he has one more parable about a king with some servants, and the king forgives a servant, but the servant won't forgive a fellow servant, right? And so number five is, we need to forgive repentant children every single time. Forgive. Seventy times seven. Children are the vulnerable party here. And we are the responsible adults in their life. Now, what I want to do is take a more narrow focus. I hope that I've shown a little bit that I think this passage is about vulnerable children, vulnerable to sin, and adults in their life. I think children is metaphorical. I'm saying that again. I think children refers to adults that have wandered into sin, that are being enticed by sin, and we as adults have a responsibility to help them. Yes, sometimes I've been confronted and I've been the child. Sometimes you've been confronted and you've been the child. Okay, You've been vulnerable to sin. Who can say that they are invincible to sin and they've never stumbled? You know, none of us can, right? And it all starts with a question. This amazing sermon Jesus gives all starts with a question, who's the greatest? And then Jesus just goes. He just goes into the whole child thing. And I love that. So let me take a narrow focus because the topic that I picked this morning is to understand what does Jesus mean when he says where two or three are gathered. So first of all, let's look at the whole confronting a brother section. So if you're going to take notes, I have uh, three for you today, and then we'll do some applications at the end. Number one, we ought to talk about the purpose of restoration, right? There's a point. If your brother sins against you, they've offended you, they've hurt you, they've wronged you, there's a debt between you, and you can go to them. But the purpose is so important to understand. The purpose, A, is restoration, the goal is restoration. I, I really wrestled with what to call this section. You know, is, is it church discipline? Is it confrontation? Does anybody like the word confrontation, really? Anybody like that word? If you do, make sure we never get in an argument, okay? Because I don't want to go there with you. Um, <laughs> I, I, hopefully nobody really likes confrontation, that nobody likes discipline. But let me tell you, I think this could be rightfully called, this is the restoration process. That's a better word than discipline. It's a better word than confrontation. Yes, those words are going on here. But, but Jesus says, if you, if you go to your brother and you point out your sin and he listens, you've won your brother over. The goal is restoration of the relationship. And if you go to your brother and give him advice, <clears throat> Chinese cookie says, a friend's advice is invaluable. There you go. Done. Okay. Go to your brother. Give him some advice. It's invaluable. There you are. I told you it was easy. It's like I planned it. Sorry. Um, now, let's say he doesn't listen to you. And you get all the way to the process of now the church knows. And by that I mean church leadership knows. And he still won't repent. He's hard-hearted. He won't meet you in the middle anywhere. He's like, I didn't do wrong. I'm not going to say I'm sorry. Forget you all. Jesus says, treat him. This is 17, verse 17. Treat him like a tax collector or a Gentile. Now, I have heard some. I've heard really smart people say this. And I think there's some truth to it. 
I've heard really smart people say, treating him like a tax collector or a Gentile does not mean shunning in any, any way. It means loving them. Because didn't Jesus love tax collectors? Didn't he love Gentiles? Well, yeah, yeah. But I don't think that's his main point. I think, there, I think you have to flavor that saying with Jesus' love for sinners. I think you have to flavor it. But I, I think the idea is that there's a separation going on here. That you're not part of the fellowship of believers if there's no restoration here and you stand in your sin and you just keep doing it. Even though you've been confronted by church leaders, you won't stop. So the alternative, I would say, is a sort of redemptive separation. I think that's what Jesus has in mind here. Redemptive being the key word, I think, because you do love tax collectors. You do love Gentiles. But there, there's a distance there. It's like the guy in 1 Corinthians that um, has this relationship with his mother-in-law that's totally inappropriate. And Paul says, cast that person out. But then you get to 2 Corinthians, and it looks like that person has repented, and Paul says, bring him back in. The point is never to say, we're done with you, you're excommunicated, we're done forever, that's it. The purpose is always, we weep, we love, we want you to follow Christ, and it pains us. But right now, there has to be this redemptive separation until you come to your senses and start living the way Christ has clearly called you to. We can't tolerate this blatant sin that's destructive in your life and destructive in other people's lives. And so I'm saying, you may have seen the opposite of this. You may have seen, you may have seen a hard-hearted, shunning excommunication of a person. I'm saying there's something much more loving and redemptive about that act if it gets to be that far. I would never go there lightly as a church leader. It would have to be very, very serious. Okay? But Paul does it in 1 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians it seems that he brings the man back in after he's repented. So, um. Secondly, what's the process of restoration? How are you supposed to do this? Um, first of all, number one is go alone. Now, for the obvious reason maybe that there's no gossip if you go alone, there's no rumors if you go alone. It's just you and the person taking care of it. Now, I put an asterisk by this because remember what Jesus is saying. Parents, go to wayward children. I've been a child. You've been a child. We've all been in that category of wandering at different times, right? Go as a parent to the child that's wandering away and call them back. I put an asterisk by that because... There's some circumstances where you should not go alone. Consider if the offender is not another sheep, but consider if they're a wolf. Would I dare send a sheep, using Jesus' shepherding theme in this Matthew 18 passage, would I send a sheep into the wolf's den and say, go confront the wolf sheep, see how that goes? Listen, you don't go to a predator. You don't go to the abuser. You don't do that. These are unsafe situations. I don't send sheep into wolves. I have heard a wolf that wanted to meet with a sheep. And I said, not in your life. That will never, ever happen. The wolf might enjoy it. And might make somewhat of a meal out of it. 
don't do it. But if it's truly this idea of parent going to wayward child, not that you're being arrogant as a parent, please. I'm going to come back to that later. But if you can go in humility and say, I've got to point this out between you and me, you are saving them a lot of gossip by going alone. There's wisdom there. Try to win your brother over. Uh, B, he says, if that doesn't work, go with two or three witnesses and tell them to bring baseball bats. It's going to be rough, you know? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, the two or three witnesses, I, you know, you used to read this and think like, oh man, it's like go time. You know, now there's four of us or there's three of us. Like, let's have a fight, you know? But if you look at Deuteronomy, there's witnesses there too. And, and, and usually scholars say, you know, the witnesses probably mean one or two things. You probably bring witnesses along to either establish the sin for them to say, yes, we saw you do this, we know this happened. Or maybe even more likely, the witnesses are able to go to the church on step three and say, yes, this confrontation happened. Yes, it was biblical. Yes, it was loving. And no, we got no resolution. And we were there. Maybe, maybe you bring someone along that's a peacemaker. A man or a woman of peace comes into that situation with you. But they're able to say, this is where it went. It's not to bully. It's not to coerce. But they are witnesses to what's going on. Now, the idea being, maybe, there might even be a possibility that the wayward child listens to the witnesses. A new voice speaking into it. Oh, it's not just that person, but other people see this in my life as well. There's witnesses. And then uh, you get to see, go take it to the church. Uh, the word is assembly, uh, and it means church. Some people have a hard time with this because the church hadn't started yet when Matthew, you know, when Jesus said this originally, you know. Like, take it to the church. What church? Pentecost hasn't happened yet, you know. What church? Uh, could mean the synagogue. I think there's two different ways to understand this. Take it to church means go to, the, go to your local synagogue and take it to the ruling parties there, the two or three that are gathered or maybe more. Take it to them. Or it could be that Matthew, when he wrote this, was just saying, look, I know we don't, I don't, I know we don't hang out in the synagogue anymore. Take it to your church leaders. Take it to the assembly. Take it to the church. Um, I'm really comfortable with either of those interpretations and probably actually both. Synagogue, church, take it to your leaders and let them step into this and give some authoritative action. So um, I think that's what he means by two or three are gathered. There's some church leadership there that, that's, that's getting together and making a decision. So um, now let's talk about the verses in question. Number three, there's a promise. Jesus says, I'm promising to be with you. So let's talk about what this means now. We've got some interesting verses. The first one is binding and loosing. If you bind something on earth, it'll be bound in heaven. If you loose something on earth, it'll be loosed in heaven. What in the world does that mean? I don't think it applies to demonic activity. Although we do pray against that, I think it's appropriate. I've done it personally. But binding and loosing here is a rabbinic expression. In other words, rabbis talk like this. And when rabbis said binding and loosing, usually what they meant was take the Old Testament and its laws and interpret them correctly. There's things that we bind and there's things that we loose. Not every situation is covered in Torah, the Old Testament. So we need people to interpret it. And this was binding 
and it was loosing. So in other words, they would say, don't work on the Sabbath. That's one of the Ten Commandments. So what constitutes work and what doesn't constitute work? And they would make binding and loosing decisions on that. And Jesus happened to say they bound a little too tight on that one back then. Because you couldn't carry certain pounds and, and, and you, couldn't, you couldn't do things you were supposed to do on Sunday because it was all work. Um, you couldn't walk a certain distance. Uh, so their binding was a little too tight. So for rabbis, that's what it meant. Interestingly enough, Jesus also says it to Peter. He says, you've been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And when Jesus said to Peter, I believe the keys of the kingdom are the gospel message. Now, I truly believe that. I'm not going to dig deep into that. If you're from a Catholic background, you may disagree with me on that. But I believe the message is, the gospel message are the keys. The church has the ability to proclaim the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves. And if someone says, no, I would rather follow Buddha and be saved, the church can say, then you're not saved. He doesn't save you. A person can say, no, I think good people get to heaven and I've been a good person. And the church can say, no, we, we, we were binding that. that. That is not how it works. You're not saved on account of your righteous works. So we have a message, and we bind or loose based on the message. Now, what about that really problematic part where um, it says whatever we bind on earth will also be bound in heaven? Do we obligate God to do anything? And my answer is, in this case, absolutely not. Um, here's, here's the verb for binding. It's perfect passive, which is a very interesting verb to use. It's not a future tense, like you would think. It will be bound in the future in heaven, but this is perfect passive. Let me read someone who translated this a little more literally for us. Check this out. Whatever you forbid on earth must already be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth must already be permitted in heaven. You dare not permit anything that God does not permit. And you dare not forbid anything that God does not forbid. You see what I mean? We look to heaven. We look to scripture. We look to God and say, I can't say anything authoritatively unless God has said it. Isn't that what Jesus said? I can only do what I see my father doing. And and the only will that I accomplish on this earth is, is the will that my father has for me. Isn't this how Jesus lived his life? I think it makes perfect sense. Whatever heaven says, we can declare. Now, are there things that heaven doesn't talk about? Well, sure. Sure. That's why you uh, shouldn't dance or go to movies or, you know, smoke or go with girls that chew tobacco or I, I don't know. I don't know. Whatever, wherever that saying goes, right? Um, so here's a problem. If it means binding and loosing based on Scripture interpreting scripture correctly does that mean that some churches have got it wrong and they've bound too tightly personally i think so i think some churches bind when they should loose and loose when they should bind it's not a guarantee that every church is going to get it right there are legalistic churches and maybe some of you've been hurt by them and if so i'm sorry 
I can say as a church leader, I'm sorry. I don't want to bind where God is loosed or vice versa. I don't want to add rules, man-made rules to your relationship. But I do want to interpret Scripture correctly based on what God has already said. And so this is a promise. B, the promise is, in church discipline issues and restoration issues, Jesus says, I'm going to be there. And when you ask me for things, I'm going to answer. When you bind things, I'm going to help you bind. When you loose, I'm going to help you loose. Just ask me. Watch me do it. I will. I will. I will help you. I'll answer your prayers. When leaders sit down and they pray for lost sheep and say, Oh God, help them see their sin. Help them see they've left the fold. Oh God, help them. Jesus says, I am going to help. I'm going to help you bind. I'm going to help you loose. I'm going to help you interpret the Bible correctly. I will be there where two or three are gathered in my name for the purpose of restoring a lost brother or sister. I'm there. I'm there. I'm lending my authority. I'm lending my power. I will help you. Now, that's a promise. And for all of you church leaders in this church, I hope this is reassuring to you. Because we've sat down as a board at different times and we've, we've talked about hard things, haven't we? Jesus is with us. He's with you. But... What about church boards and leaders who lead inappropriately and make decisions that are not biblical? What about people that compromise on, the, on, on sexual morality in these days? What about churches that add some sort of legalistic no going to movies and no dancing and we're going to make all of our people do that? You know, what about that? I wonder, this is just a wonder, I wonder if the promise of Jesus' presence turns into a warning. You, you want to you come down hard on that person for no reason? You want to enforce your morality, your personal decisions on somebody else? You're going to misuse this scripture for your own authority? I wonder if Jesus is saying, remember, I'm with you. I'm there. You better be careful, leaders. I don't know. But it is sobering to think about. Um, finally, some applications. So you've heard all this. What can you do with it? What can you do with it? Uh, here's a few. Number one. You can choose from other fantastic verses that will reassure you of Jesus' perpetual presence. Jesus is always with you to the very end of the age, and I've given you three verses that prove it. Maybe this one's not the one that's your go-to. Unless you're a leader and you're in the process of church discipline and restoration, then maybe you do go here, right? Um, here's some you could use, because there's many. And I don't want to ever discourage anyone from thinking that when they're by themselves praying to Christ... I don't want anyone to think that Christ is not there because they don't have a second person. That's not what this is saying. Uh, number two, um, we all desperately need humility during conflict. If you're in the parent role and you go with arrogance, if you go to be a bully, if you go for any 
hint of revenge, you've missed it. You've totally missed it. You need humility. Because the goal is restoration. This is a restoration process. Your goal is to fix the relationship between you and that person. That's the goal. And if you go for something else, and if you go on a high horse as if you have not sinned, and you haven't been in the role of child, you've missed it. You've totally missed it. Also, if you're the person in the child role, and the parent comes to you, the temptation will be, who are you to point out my sin? Who are you to tell me? Are you without sin? Don't come to me with that. I've even heard this. Maybe you've seen this. I remember a person. I don't remember who did the confronting. Who, who was the person that brought this into them. But I remember a person who said, I don't think you did this specifically according to Matthew 18. So you should not be bringing this to me like this. I have a huge problem with that if you're saying, I won't look at my sin because I don't like the way you did this. Like, is the sin there or not? Can you humble yourself? I mean, there's a good chance you are just trying to avoid the sin issue by saying this is your fault. You didn't bring two witnesses. You talked to the elders before you brought witnesses. And because you short-circuited the process, you messed this up and this is all your fault. No. Don't go there. You are becoming self-righteous and you're refusing to look at your own sin. Don't do that. And I've seen it. Unfortunately, more than once. You have to have humility in this process because nobody's perfect and nobody gets it 100% right. We're all sinners going to other sinners and talking about sin. You know, it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be messy at times. So you've got to have humility if someone comes to you. Everybody needs humility. Church leaders need humility when they come together to decide something. Lord, give us humility. Make us, like, make us dependent like a child on you. Number three. Um, you might consider whether some personal offenses should just be overlooked. The worst thing that could happen is for you to go home today and say, now, who has sinned against me? <laughs> I have my witnesses plugged into my phone. I'm ready to call them the moment this doesn't go right. No. No. Love covers a couple sins. No, no. Love covers a multitude of sins. A multitude. You may decide, and I have done this myself many times, you may decide... I didn't like what you said. I didn't like what you did. I felt like it was a personal slight. I feel like you really you offended. But you know what? In grace, I'm covering over it because love covers a multitude of sins. I don't think I need to go to you on this. That takes wisdom. That takes wisdom. And you need to ask the Lord to give you wisdom. Okay? You may want to overlook it. You may want to do that. Because the last thing I want is to turn loose the morality police in church. You've probably seen that before. I've seen it. I saw a person who called another person and said, you've got to confront them for what they did. And if you don't confront them, I'm going to church leaders about you for not confronting them. Holy cow, stop. Stop. Just, just stop. 
Can we trust the Lord's wisdom and helping us figure out what we're supposed to do in this situation? Because I've seen it go wrong. Number four, um, would you consider speaking with one of your pastors or elders for conflict coaching? You know, come to me, have a conversation about it. I've done it. I don't like it. But I love seeing restoration. The only thing I can say about loving conflict is loving the restoration that comes from it. That's what I love. That's what I live for. And if you want to talk about that and what that might look like to go to your brother or your sister, let's talk about it. That's what we're here for. Fifthly and lastly, old Pastor Brian Thorstad, he would love me for this. Uh, you that were here during, during Brian's couple years here, interim years, um, he used to say, when someone comes up to you and they have an issue with another believer and they start venting to you and gossiping and you don't need to hear this. The problem is we usually think we need to hear it. You know, tell me more. Um, no. You know when you don't need to hear something and it's just gossip. I have trusted adults, believers in my life that I can vent to. I don't gossip. I don't want to do that. I'm sure I've stumbled, as have we all, though. But when you hear someone bring something to you that you don't need to hear, you shouldn't, you're not part of the solution to this thing. You need to say, whoa, wait a minute, you need to talk to so-and-so. And the chances are they don't want to talk to them. They just want to rip them to shreds in front of you and others and give them a bad name. You can put a stop to that and say, this is Matthew 18, Go. You're hurt. You're not letting it go. It's been eating you away. Go. Go talk. And set them on a process towards restoration. Um, Worship team, if you come up at this time, um, I'd love to give a personal invitation to those of you who don't know Christ yet. Today, do you want to become like a child? Do you want to reach out your hand in dependence and take God's This is his promise for you. If you ask him for forgiveness, he will forgive. Based on Jesus' death on the cross. So would you bow your head and close your eyes at this time? I'd invite you to pray a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I know that I am the sheep wandering from the fold. I know I am the person that in pride has not followed you to this point. But at this point, I want to become dependent and humble like a child and take your hand in this moment. I confess that I'm a sinner. I need saving. I need transformation. And so I believe, Jesus, that you died on a cross to pay for that and that you rose from the dead. Please come into my life. Please save me. And then help me follow you all the rest of my days. For it's in your name I pray. Amen.